And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, we'll be looking at the entire chapter, which covers 57 verses. This will be our longest section that we've covered so far in Judges. And last week, we noted the unfitting end to Gideon's life. We saw that he was a man worthy of great commendation for his faith throughout his ministry as a judge, as a military leader. Right? But at the end, he comes really within a hair's width of condemnation. A man whom the rest of scriptures commends for his faith. I mean, if we didn't know better, he would, we would have said he fell away. He apostatized. So I think he comes as close as you can come to that, the end of his life. And He had declared God was Israel's king, but ended up living as if he himself were king, right? He even calls his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. There's just no getting around these sins that he's committed. And so we said last week that his downfall was the result of one, underestimating the external temptation that surrounded him, especially as the people began to lift him up and praise him, to fill him with pride, which really just revealed this internal corruption that he underestimated in himself. So he underestimated the external temptation, he underestimated the internal corruption, and ultimately neglected the means that God had provided to preserve him in his faith. The work of the Spirit, his prayer life, completely absent in that second section. Of, uh, chapter 8. But prior to that, what did we see? We saw him lead this army of 300 against an opposing Midianite army of 135,000. Right? The odds were astronomically bad, and yet in his, uh, against him, in opposition to him. To go into chaos, they end up turning their swords upon one another, Slaughtering each other before, so that 120,000 of them are dead before he finally chases them down, the last 15,000 of them, again, still with that 300. What, what is it a picture of? It's a picture of God. God caused evil to destroy itself. And in our text this morning, we're going to see a similar thing happening. And yet now... It happens among the Israelites themselves. It's not the Midianites destroying themselves, it's the Israelites destroying themselves. And that, ironically, is the good news. The good news is that our sovereign God can use evil to destroy evil. That he preserves his own covenant people by causing evil to destroy evil. So before we read this chapter, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. And it's difficult and challenging as much of Judges is. And yet we see ourselves in this text as well. We see how prone we are to wander. We see how often 
we ourselves are tempted by these, how easy it rewards. How easy it is for our own hearts to be drawn to that internal corruption. And so, Lord, we're here now because we do not want to neglect the means of grace that you've provided. Cause us to persevere. Even as we depend upon you, speaking through your word, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Soften our hearts to respond to this truth in obedience. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Judges chapters. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh and this woman's relatives or, and his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Berith, which, uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. And cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit, and go hold sway over the trees. And the tree said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men, and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come. And take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have come to him as his deeds have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life. And delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day. And have killed his sons, 70 men, on one stone. And have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem. Because he is your relative. And if you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam. And with his house this day. Then rejoice in Abimelech. And let him also rejoice in you. 
But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years in Abimelech. That the violence done to the sept of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them. And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their god, of their god Abimelech. And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jeroboam and is, is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that his people were under my hand then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gael, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gael, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people ride with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he and the people who are with him came, come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, People are coming down from the mountains, from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gael spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, where's your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gael went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech, and Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many, many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. On the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was, was told. He took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields, <clears throat> and he looked and saw the people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it and he raised the city and sowed it with salt. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, 
Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together, and Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech put it against the stronghold and they set the stronghold on fire over them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about 1,000 men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll have to take this a bit faster than we're used to, but um, you can read along, and, and if you're a note taker, go back and reference some of the passages that I'll refer to as, as we're going through this. But we begin here with Abimelech's rise in Shechem, verses 1 through 6. It accounts his, how he receives financial help from his mother's relatives, and he uses that those 70 shekels to hire worthless and reckless fellows who assist him in killing his 70 brothers, the, the sons of his father. One of them does escape, which we find out is Jotham, who later on will give this fable that we'll look at in the next section. But he goes to kill them with 70 shekels, essentially one shekel per victim. And in verse 5, it says, And he went to his father's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, and he hid, for he hid himself. So Jeroboam's sons were slaughtered on one stone, and this, this stone was located in Ophrah. And most likely, it's the original site of Baal's altar that was in Gideon's, that was at his father's house. And in fact, this, there's a reference to, to a stone, a great stone in, we come to at the end of Judges, or Joshua chapter 24. During this covenant renewal ceremony, Joshua says this. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. So you can see these references to this large stone in Shechem all relating to these covenantal ceremonies. 
either being in the form of worship to Yahweh, to the Lord God, or later on, worshiping of Baal, and now back to the Lord through Gideon, and once again now back to Baal. But Joshua had established this place as a witness. And he said, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. And that's what's taking place here. Now, you have Abimelech slaughtering 70 of his brothers, 69 technically because Jotham escapes, 69 of his brothers on this one stone. Do you notice what's missing, though, in that section? We've grown accustomed to a cycle with every judge being raised up. You have Israel doing what is evil. Well, that was at the end of chapter 8, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals um, and made Baal Bereth their god. So they're doing what is evil. They're committing idolatry. So that part of the cycle is there. Check. Everything else is missing. The Lord does, it doesn't say the Lord sold them into the hands of an oppressor. It doesn't say that the people cried out in despair from that oppression. It doesn't say that the Lord raised up a deliverer. Instead, the Lord now is selling Israel into the hand or wanted, selling Israel into the hand of a foreign oppressor. Now we see the people getting exactly what they wanted. But the oppression is coming from within. God's punishment was allowing them to indulge in their idolatry. In addition to their request for a, for, for a king like the nations, right? they're wanting to be like their neighbors in every way. They don't want to be ruled by God. They want to be ruled by one of their own idolaters. And so the principle is this, the Lord can punish sin by bringing external oppression, right? We've seen that in every judge prior to this, by bringing external oppression, and yet he can also punish people by allowing them to indulge in their own internal corruption. Giving them over to the lust of their flesh. In fact, we, we saw that again in our Sunday school class as we considered Romans chapter 1. Listen to this, Romans chapter 1 verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. In response to idolatry, God gives them over to the lusts of their hearts to indulge in their idolatry. That is exactly what's taking place here. And that's why the restraining grace of the Lord's discipline has to be seen as a great mercy. As paradoxical as that is, discipline is a mercy from God. Left to ourselves, our corrupt hearts rebel against God. Of accountability. We need people who are willing to speak the truth in love. And the accountability and discipline of the Holy Spirit are a means of sustaining our faith. And the Spirit works in and through his people. 
it is the responsibility of the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That means all of us are called to this ministry of reconciliation, which is going to involve rebuke, which is going to be hard to hear, but in the end strengthens us, strengthens the commitment we have to one another. Or this same kind of devastating destruction awaits those who do not pursue those means of grace, those who neglect those means. So Jotham gives this fable here in the next section, verses 7 through 21. He's the lone escapee, and he curses Shechem and Abimelech in his, in his story. Verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Mount Gerizim is a, an important place, also with covenantal overtones. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 12 through 13. When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice. So these are, this is how it's going to work. You're going to bring Israel into this valley in Shechem. And a group is going to stand over on Mount Gerizim, and they're going, to, they're going to declare blessings upon the people. And then another group is going to stand on Mount Ebal and declare curses upon the people. Okay? And that, that is renewed again in Joshua 8 and Joshua 24. You have what we already looked at, another similar fashion. We will let Shechem. So this, this is a picture that's taking place probably in, in very similar fashion, where the people are coming before these mountains and hearing curses and blessings called out. Well, this is the irony here because Jotham goes up to the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim. But what does he declare from there? He declares a, what ultimately is a curse. And it's consistent with this theme of reversal in the book of Judges, the, the re- reversal of God's blessings into curses, that the people have forsaken the Lord their God and that turned what was meant to be a blessing upon them, the blessings and fruit of living in the promised land, all of it, gets turned into a curse upon them. And so notice the contrast that he gives here in these sections. Uh, talks about the blessings of olive and fig and vine. As the people ask the olive treats, you rule over them to sway its branches over them. And, and the olive tree says, why would I forsake the blessing that I've been given? And the same thing with the fig. Why would I forsake the, the sweet fruit that I have in order to, to have, hold sway over the trees? Same with the vine. Why would I forsake this, the, the blessing of fresh wine in order to rule? So the olive provides oil, the fig provides sweet fruit, and the vine provides fresh wine. So they finally go to a bramble bush. A bramble. Not even a tree. Not even capable of providing shade really only capable of bringing thorns. Consistent with what we read in chapter 2, verse 3, right? this promise that if you forsake the Lord God, their gods would become a thorn and a snare upon you. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And there we were thinking it's all external, but here we see that snare and that thorn has, has come from within. It's one of their own. So what do we learn about ourselves in this? Well, we have to confess that we are a lot like Israel, that we want kings who are like the nations. And I'm not talking about politically here. I'm talking about within the church. We want church leaders who are good by worldly standards. And it leads to the kind of devastating consequences we see in Judges 9. Destruction often comes from within, from the leaders we ourselves have elected. And if you look at the churches that have, that have closed their doors time and time again, it is due to a corruption within the leadership. And so we should ask for leaders who know and promote God's agenda, not their own. We don't vote based upon popularity. We don't elect leaders because they've got a lot of money. Right? We elect godly leaders who have good character, who don't promote themselves but promote God's agenda. And then we pray for them because they will face hardship and trials at every step of the way. And, and so back to this context of the, the challenge was not that they wanted a king. In fact, in the end, we'll see that refrain over and over again that the people did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A king, according to God's will, would have been helpful. A king like David king after God's own heart, even though he himself had his problems, right? But, but that was a king that brought blessing. Very few of the kings in Israel did because they were always evaluating based upon worldly standards. And so as soon as our desires are turned toward worldly means of comfort, financial security, um, you can, you can name whatever comfort you find, emotional peace. Whenever we're, our desires are simply turned to those things, not, not for God's will primarily, then we should be on our face before God asking him to do whatever it takes to preserve us from wandering. Even if that means turning evil upon itself allowing conflict to eliminate itself. And I'm not even going to begin to give you a picture of what that would look like in our day, in, in our context, but it certainly can apply in a number of ways. But there's hope too. Because we know that God, as a loving father, disciplines his children. And we see a picture in Hosea where he says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry. 
and went after her lovers and forgotten me, declares the Lord. So when they were in the middle of idolatry, he's intent on punishing her for that. And then in the very next verse, we read this, chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The chastisement leads to an alluring back into that covenant faithfulness that God had called his people to. Again, it's a picture of the, the effect of, of good and godly and loving and necessary discipline. While the rest of the narrative proves Jotham's curse, we'll briefly consider this. It is verses 22 through 57, so you'll, you'll have to evaluate this on your own, read it along, but I'll give you some verses to consider. First of all, we see an escalation in the tension between them. There's a discontentment among the people in verses 23 and 24. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. There's an evil spirit now between them. They don't trust, any, they don't trust each other anymore. That leads to opposition, active opposition against one another where they're actively trying to thwart each other's plans in verse 25. In verses 26 through 29, a, a rival leader is found. Gail comes into Shechem and everyone starts looking to Gail. What if he were our king? What if he could replace Abimelech? He's the kind of leader we need, which then leads to civil war, verses 30 through 49, and death. Death of Abimelech, death of the leaders of Shechem by the end. So notice that escalation from discontentment to death. Church leadership, I think, must be vigilant in eliminating this kind of escalation of tension within the church. Because if it's just left to fester, it'll be all too easy for factions of discontentment to escalate to a point that ultimately brings shame upon the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ and leads to destruction. Eventually, Shechem's tension with Abimelech boiled over into that kind of complete destruction. So you had Jotham's curse that fire would come out from Abimelech. You have that in verses 42 through 49. He wiped out all of his brothers, first of all, and then he goes to his own mother's clan, the people who had given him the money to wipe out his brothers, and he wipes them out after that tension had escalated. He's now, he's got no friends, technically. They're all enemies, except for the people that he's hired. And then you have fire from Shechem in verses 50 through 55. He, he attempts, Abimelech attempts the same tactic that, that had already worked at the Tower of Shechem. He now goes to um, this Tower of Thebes, Remember, he had taken branches, he'd cut them off, he put them on his back, and he laid them at the tower. This was at Shechem. He got all of his men to do the same thing, so they surrounded this tower with branches, and then they set him on fire, and, and it says that everyone in the tower died, whether they were smoked out, whether they died of suffocation or, or, or burned alive. What, whatever it is, they, they were all killed by that tactic, so he then thinks he'll do the same thing at Thebes, and he starts to bring these branches up to the tower, and a woman holds a millstone out and drops it on his head. Wouldn't that be a story to 
see in a movie, a scene, you know, this, this woman carrying a millstone as she's fleeing for her life to this tower, this, this tower at Thebes, lugging along a millstone and then taking it all the way up to the roof so that she could use. It's an interesting scene, and it's humiliating for Abimelech. So he asked to be killed by his servant. And the conclusion in verses 56 and 57 teaches us really the the crux of, of this section, of this whole chapter. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their hand. Uh, on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. So what do we learn about God in God's judgment? He can use evil to destroy evil. God's judgment is swift and exacting. And how does that point us to Christ? Well, Abimelech's reign parallels the reign of Saul. And it does it in several ways. First of all, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, you see Saul is filled by an evil spirit and begins to make poor decisions. And then in the end of his life, chapter 31, verse 4, he too wants to die with honor and asks his servant to kill him so that he wouldn't die at the hands of the Philistines. So, Saul's reign stands in contrast to David's reign, which of course foreshadows the reign of Christ. At any one of these kings, either is a contrast of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. And in this case, Abimelech is a contrast to the way our Lord reigns. There's something else too, though, I would, I would say that we can look to. Daniel Block mentions that he who slaughtered his brothers upon one stone has his skull crushed beneath one stone. It's reminiscent, and it may be an allusion to Genesis 3.15. Well, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent here, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The, the word here is, is in the same, it's not the exact same word, but it's in the same family of words, which can be translated crush or bruise or oppress. It, there's, there's a wide variety of, of words that can, that can be used here. And so this idea of the head of Abimelech being crushed. It's, it's proof that he wasn't the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15, of course. It's the reverse of that, though. Right? It's a contrast. And so, again, the good news is that our sovereign God can use evil to destroy evil. So Abimelech's rise shows how God punishes people by allowing them to indulge their internal corruption. And then Jotham's fable reveals how God's intended blessing can become a curse when forsaken and neglected. And Abimelech's demise was a result of the judgment of God. God used evil to destroy evil. 
So Abimelech isn't the judge we need, but he is the one that we deserve. However, God used all of this to raise up his son. Right? Jesus Christ isn't the savior that we deserve, but he brought the healing that we needed when he himself was crushed for our iniquities. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for...